Father, we thank you for the Feast of Tabernacles, which is a great picture for us of the coming kingdom. And we ask that you give us insight into what we need to know to get ready until Jesus comes. We pray in his name. Amen. We're going to do the walk through the life of Christ. It starts with Bethlehem birth. Go. Bethlehem birth, Egypt flight, Nazareth carpenter, Jordan river, baptized by John, wilderness, tempted by Satan, Perea, first followers, Cana, first miracle, Jerusalem, first cleansing, second birth, Sychar, woman at the well, Nazareth, rejection, Capernaum, authority, conflict, spat, S, selection of the twelve, sermon on the mount, power from Satan, parables start, a storm stilled, a crowd filled, testimony of Peter, transfiguration. Last time we, we, in our last session, we went down through Samaria and he had a great Rejection, And now in, in this next session, we're going to see he gets to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And we're going to say, stones flew, Jesus withdrew. Okay, good. Have a seat. Great job. We are in the last six months of Jesus' life in John chapter 7 and verse 37. Paragraph, I believe it's 97. Opposition to the king, Christ, the last time we were together made an incredible offer. If any man thirsts, let him come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink, just as the Scripture says. From within him will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were going to receive, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus is going to come live with us. And when he comes to live in us, he's going to put his spirit in us. And that's what happens after the Acts 2 event. The church starts when the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. And he comes and does things in us that he wasn't able to do in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, he would come upon a person, usually for a specific job. And after Acts 2, the Holy Spirit indwells every believer, and he stays there permanently, and there are things that he does. He teaches us. He brings to mind what we need to know, and Jesus is inviting the people of Israel to be a part of that. It's such a big deal at the feast that this courtyard in the temple, which is full of thousands of people chanting the Psalms of Ascent and singing the verses from Isaiah, it says in verse 40 of John 7, when they heard these words, some of the crowd began to say, this is really what? the prophet. And since you've been doing this course, you should understand what that's a reference to. It's a reference to what? Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses said, God is going to send another prophet like me. And Moses was the leader of the Old Testament Feast of Tabernacles. He instituted it. He was there when God dwelled in the midst of the people. So they get it. They know who Jesus is. And they say, this is the prophet. But again, the multitude is divided. Others say this is the Christ, but still others say no, for the Christ doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Doesn't the scripture say that the Christ is a descendant of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lives? So there was a division in the crowd because of Jesus. Some of them were wanting to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. And because they don't understand that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, they they always call him Jesus of Nazareth, because that was how he was referred to and where he grew up. Uh, They are missing out on his origin. And then, I love this, the officers (laughs) returned to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring him back here? We're going to arrest him right now. 
And the officers replied, no one ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered, you haven't been deceived too, have you? None of the rulers or the Pharisees have believed in him, have they? But this rabble who do not know the law are accursed. Now, it seems to me in that verse you've got the problem. They are practicing elitism. They are practicing pride. They are practicing the idea of they're better than the common folks. And that's what they thought. And you, temple guard, had a job to do and you don't do it. Are you becoming like the multitude? Some are, some are believing. But here's our boy, Nicodemus. I love him. He shows up three times in the life of Christ. Nicodemus, our first Irish person in the New Testament, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of the rulers, said, Our law doesn't condemn a man unless it first hears from him and learns what he is doing, does it? They replied, You aren't from Galilee too, are you? Investigate carefully and you will see that no prophet comes from Galilee. Well, even these guys are so emotionally overwrought that they're not making sense because there are many prophets that come from Galilee in their scriptures. I'm thinking of Hosea. I'm thinking of Jonah. I'm thinking of Elijah and Elisha. I'm thinking of Nahum. And again, they're ignorant about Christ, his person, and his birthplace, and they've already made the emotional decision that we're going to kill him. And then each one departed to his own house. Now there's an asterisk there because the next event is not recorded in the best of the New Testament manuscripts. So if you have a New American Standard Bible, it won't be in there. But I think the event actually happened. It possibly happened right here at the Feast of Tabernacles. I think I understand why John's editors later put it in here if John didn't put it in here. John may have written it. We're not sure. There are two major groups of manuscripts when you study the New Testament, and this is one of those passages that is not in one bunch and is in the other. It's in the old King James manuscripts. But some of the more scholarly editions don't always have this event. But again, I think this event happened, and I think the purpose of paragraph 99 is to try to get Jesus to deny the Mosaic law. Because that's the rub. You know, they tried to get, uh, you know, the officers replied in verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man. Uh, and they don't have, what they don't have about Jesus is him denying the law. He denies the Mishnah. He denies their tradition. He denies their way of approaching things, but they don't have him with a capital offense that they can take to court until they get him breaking an Old Testament law. So here we go. In the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, we have this little event, which is very important, and uh, each one departed to his own house, paragraph 99, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, Early in the morning he came to the temple courts again. All the people came to him and he sat down and began to teach. I love this. This is, this is the temple mount and opposite that dome, see where that church is way up here? That church is on the top of the Mount of Olives. And I've, One of my favorite places in Jerusalem is to get to go to the Mount of Olives. That's another view of it uh, from the temple area. And there's, there's a road that comes down that probably is the same path that Jesus would have taken down the, the uh, Mount of Olives on Palm Sunday riding that little donkey. And there's an old grumpy guy on that road. Uh, and you, you can see there's the temple area. There's the east gate, which is closed off, which I believe Jesus went into on Palm Sunday and will go into again at his second coming when we celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with him. But Jesus is in uh, the Mount of Olives, and it's just across the way. It's you know about a 10-minute walk. And the experts in the law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught committing adultery. They made her stand in front of him, and Jesus said, and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act 
of adultery. Now here's what's putrid in Peru. It's not rotten in Denmark, it's putrid in Peru. If she's in the very act of adultery, she's got to have a partner. And they didn't bring the guy. So my guess is that she's a plant. And what they're trying to do is get Jesus to disagree with the Mosaic law. And so, John 8, 5, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone to death such women. What about the guys? Well, them too. They don't count the guys. Now, they were asking this in an attempt to trap him so they could bring charges against him. Jesus bent down, bent over again and wrote, I'm sorry, bent down and wrote on the ground with his finger. Here's their deal. You know, if Jesus says, let's go ahead and, and have her stoned, okay, then, then he's in trouble with the Romans. If he says, well, let's not have her stoned, then he's breaking an Old Testament uh, commandment. So again, they think they've got him here. They, they always try to, to get him between a rock and a hard place, and he always wiggles out. Verse 7, when they persisted in asking him, he stood up straight and replied, whoever among you is guiltless may be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he bent over and wrote on the ground. So there's a great emphasis here on the law. And they're trying to use the law to find a way to kill Jesus. And Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 17, it says that a person involved in this kind of a sin or any capital offense is, is, is to be stoned. But the first person who casts the first stone <laughs> is the one who's been offended by the sin. And that person also has the right not to throw the stone. That's the Jewish tradition. Okay. So here's what's cool. I've heard sermons on what did Jesus write on the ground? Because it's mentioned here twice. What did he write there? I'm here to give you the definitive answer tonight. We have no idea. But the emphasis in the text is not on what he wrote. But clearly the emphasis in the Greek text is on how he wrote. Take that word finger and circle it twice, both in verse 6 and in verse 8. The Greek word actually says in verse 6, Jesus bent down and with his finger on the ground he wrote. It's the first word in the construction. And that's important because there are 613 laws in the Old Testament, but 603 of them are written on a parchment with a pen. The other ten, called the Ten Commandments, are written by God in stone. And if you go back to Exodus 31.18, Exodus 32.15, Deuteronomy 4.13, and Deuteronomy 9.10, all those passages mention that when God wrote his law on the stone tablets, he wrote them with his finger. And it may be that Jesus is just showing, hey, I've got the authority here. I'm the same God of the Old Testament who wrote these laws, and I'm going to tell you what to do. If you want to, if you want to talk about the law, let's put you under the law. Yeah. He who's without sin in this situation, you cast the first stone. That's what the law says. <laughs> Maybe he was writing their names in the sand. Maybe he knew who had committed adultery with this woman. I don't know. Maybe he just wrote, thou shalt not commit adultery. But we know this. When they heard this, verse 9, they began to drift away one at a time, starting with the older ones, until Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. And now he very gently and lovingly deals with her. He doesn't 
forgive the sin. He just tells her to let's get this act together. He stood straight up. Well, I mean, he forgives it in one way. He said, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? So he doesn't condemn her. She replied, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn, your, condemn you either. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. He can't excuse her because that would be breaking the law. But he does say, I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to exact judgment on you. I'm not going to throw the first sin either. But from now on, you know, don't do this again. And by allowing her to be forgiven, it also claims that he's, in fact, God, the one who has the right to forgive now we go back to John 8 at the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says in paragraph 100, Then Jesus spoke out again, I am the what? Light of the world. The one who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees objected, You testify about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now why is this a big deal? You know, if you're a Gentile American like I was raised, you grow up, and, and you, you know, you go to church and you hear Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Okay, cool, dude, wonderful. But, you know, there was another thing going on during this Feast of Tabernacles. First you had the whole deal with the water and the pouring and the steps of ascent and the altar and we're thirsting after God. But there also was a commemorative set of candle stands in the courtyard. Okay, some people think there were two, some people think there were four, the point is not how many there were. The point is what they, what they did. In this courtyard, these four, I believe four probably, candle stands were 20 to 30 feet high, and they burned 24-7. And they were put in a square arrangement. Okay, so during the day, what would you see coming up from the wicks? You'd see the smoke. And that would remind you of the presence of God in the wilderness on the earth. And at night, up on the highest mountain in Israel, Mount Moriah, what would you see? The light burning from the oil in the lamps. And it would remind you of the light of God burning in the wilderness. Okay? So that's why when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, they know exactly what he's saying. They're saying, I'm the one who fulfills this feast. I'm the very presence of God on the earth. And that's why the Pharisees object, verse 13. Jesus defends himself. First of all, verse 14, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. You don't know where I came from or where I'm going. And then, verse 17, it is written in your law that the testimony of two men is true and I testify about myself and the Father who sent me testifies about me. When did the Father testify about Jesus? At the baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So we've got two witnesses. That's what you demand. And then they began asking him, Who is your father? Jesus answered, you do, not, you do not know either me or my father. If you knew me, you would know my father too. Jesus spoke these words near the offering box while he was teaching in the temple courts. No one seized him because his time had not yet come. So he's saying here that, look, you're under judgment because you don't know the Father. You know, you walk in darkness. You need the light, and I'm the light. And then there's a conflict over his person in paragraph 101. Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will look for me, but you will die in your sins. And again, that's because they're part of that evil generation who said you get your power from 
Satan. This is a big deal right here. And he's going to claim not only to be the light of the world, but he's going to claim to be God three times before the end of chapter 8. So the Jewish leaders began to say, perhaps he's going to kill himself because he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. No. Jesus replied, you people are from below, I am from above. You people are from this world, I am not from this world. Thus, I told you, you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And the word I am he is Hebrew, Yahweh, Jehovah, I am. See, he's very clear about this. People, people that come up to me and say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. They just don't understand how many times and how many ways he does it. But he's very clear. I'm the light of the world, and I am he. So they try to trap him, verse 25. Who are you? Jesus replied, what have I told you from the beginning? I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the Father who sent me is truthful, and the things I have heard from him I speak to the world, they didn't understand that he was telling them about his Father. You see? Here's the conflict over his person, verses 21 to 30. Number one, I'm going away, verse 21. Number two, you people are from below. Number three, you will die in your sins, verse 24. Number four, I am he. Number five, I have many things to say to you and judge about you. Number six, the Father who sent me is truthful. And then number seven, then Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And lifting up, I think, has to do with the crucifixion. That's John's motif in John 3. He said the Son of Man will be lifted up, and you're going to crucify me. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak just what the Father taught me. So first of all, Christ is the true object of faith, and then second in this, in this chapter, Christ is the true deliverer. He, first of all, delivers us from sin. Verse 31, Then Jesus said to those Judeans who had believed in him, If you continue to follow my teaching, you are really my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, compared to the Pharisees who don't know the truth and want to put you under slavery to their burdensome system of Mishnaic Judaism. We are descendants of Abraham, they replied, and have never been anyone's slaves. Well, that's not true. They were slaves in Babylon, they were slaves in Egypt, they were slaves to the Assyrians, they were slaves in Rome that day. But again, they don't see it. Verse 34, Jesus answered, I tell you the solemn truth, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. And you know, by the way, guys, you're trying to kill me, and you're practicing that, and you're a slave of that. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the family forever, but the son remains forever. If the son sets you free, you will be really free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you want to kill me because my teaching makes no progress among you. I am telling you the things I have seen while with the Father. As for you, practice what you heard from the, from, from the Father. And they answered, Abraham is our father. Abraham, we know... <laughs> believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteous. And so this last part of this passage is going to be all about Abraham. How do we know that Abraham believed? Because of the works that were in his life. You know, that whole passage from Habakkuk 3, the, the, the righteous man shall live by faith, is a reference to Abraham. Abraham believed that God was willing to take Isaac, the son of promise, and raise him up again after he was sacrificed. And so Abraham has works in his life that show us his faith. 
The whole book of James chapter 2 is about that. Jesus replied, verse 39, If you are Abraham's children, you would be doing the deeds of Abraham, but now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. Abraham did not do this. So Jesus is the true deliverer from sin, verses 31 to 40, and then he's also the deliverer from Satan, verses 40 to 48. We're going to get real intense here. And he says... You people are doing the deeds of your father. And then they said to Jesus, We were not born as a result of immorality like you were because your mother was probably impregnated by some Roman soldier back in Nazareth. You with me? We're all here between the lines. But that's what they taught about Jesus. He was born as a result of sinfulness. They don't get, up, they don't get off on the virgin birth. We only have one father, God himself. Verse 42, Jesus replied, If God were your father... You would love me, for I have come from God, and I'm now here, and I have not come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why don't you understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot accept my, pe- my teaching. You people are from your father, the devil. <laughs> and you want to do what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not uphold truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, because he is a liar and the father of lies. Now look at Satan was the original liar, and he was the original murderer. And the Pharisees are trying to murder Jesus, and he's just saying, you're just like your father. And it drives them nuts because they they consider themselves sons of Abraham. Verse 45. First of all, you're like your father, the devil. Second, he's a liar and the father of lies. And then third, down in verse 46, you don't, seven, you don't belong to God. Verse 45, because I am telling you the truth, You do not believe me. Who among you can prove me guilty of any sin? I've been here three years. You've never convinced me of of one sin I've I've committed. I've not broken any of the laws. If I'm telling you the truth, why don't you believe me? The one who belongs to God listens and responds to God's words. You don't listen and respond because you don't belong to God. Now, how do you feel about Jesus right about now? You're a Pharisee. I'm ticked. And they go off here. They, the Judeans replied, and that's the Jewish leaders, aren't we correct in saying that you are a Samaritan and possessed by a demon? Now they might have been referring to him as part of the group that lived here of mixed race in Samaria, but here's a better thought. I think that they're saying, look, you're a Samaritan, and they use that term as a reference in Jewish demonism, the rabbis taught, that a demon by the name of Shamronai, same spelling for Samaritan, S-H-O-M-R-O-N-I, was the father of Asmodai, A-S-M-O-D-A-I, and he was the prince of all the demons. So if you read the Talmud, you'll find these names. And they're accusing Jesus of being demonic. He's getting his power from Satan. And so Samaritan is a slang term, a catch-all. I think they're probably referring to that here. Aren't we correct in saying that you are a Samaritan and possessed by a demon? Jesus answered, I am not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father, and yet you dishonor me. I'm not trying to get praise for myself. There is one who demands it, and he also judges. I tell you the solemn truth. If anyone obeys my teaching, he will never see death. Verse 52, the Jews responded, Now we know you're possessed by a demon. Both Abraham and the prophets died. Yet you say, if anyone obeys my teaching, he will never experience death. You aren't greater than our father Abraham who died, are you? And the prophets died too. Who do you claim to be? Jesus replied, 
If I glorify myself, my glory is worthless. If the one who glorifies me is my Father, about whom you people say he is our God, yet you do not know him, but I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I obey his teaching. Your father Abraham was overjoyed to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. What is that about? I think that's pretty cool, don't you? And Jot down in there, Hebrews eleven seventeen. Let me read you what the writer of Hebrews says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offered up by his only begotten son, was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac shall your descendants be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, which he also received him back as a type. Wait a minute. You're not even 50 years old. Abraham died, the prophets died. He said, let me tell you about Abraham. He rejoiced to see my day. When God said, Abraham, offer up your son, the son of the promise, Abraham had the faith to believe that God was miraculously able to raise Isaac from the dead, and that was a fulfillment of what happened in the person of Christ. Christ is our son of the promise, and God will miraculously raise him from from the dead, therefore he won't die. Verse 57, the Judeans replied, You are not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, I tell you the solemn truth. Before Abraham came into existence, I am. I am. Yahweh. I am God. Jehovah. There's no doubt right now. He's not violated any of the commandments, but he has claimed clearly to be God. So, verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him, But Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple area. When stones flew, Jesus what? Withdrew. You with me? Now, we're going to stay in the John account. We're going to crank through this. One of my favorite passages. Jesus has just claimed to be the light of the world. He's the living water, fulfilling the Feast of Tabernacles. He's the light of the world, the presence of God on the earth. Now, to validate that message, he will do a miracle. John 9. Now as Jesus was passing by, he saw a rabbi who had been blind how long? From birth. Underline that. There are three messianic miracles in the life of Christ that the rabbis said, we know this could happen, but it hasn't happened, so when Messiah comes, he will do it. The first we saw in Luke chapter 5. It was the cleansing of a leper after the giving of the law and the building of the temple. No one had ever done that. Jesus does, and the crowd goes, Ah! Matthew 12, the casting out of a mute demon. You can't get the name of the demon if the demon makes a man mute. Jesus does it in front of the multitude, and the crowd goes, Ah! And the third is the healing of a man born blind. In the rabbinical teaching, As a reference to Isaiah 61, which Jesus read in Luke 4, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And in the Jewish paraphrases and interpretations, it says, and give recovery of sight to one born blind. Now the disciples and Jesus are walking, and they see a man born blind. And the disciples ask him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he would be born this way? So the first thing we're going to have is physical healing. 
Jesus answered, neither this man sinned nor his parents. It's not the Jewish way of laying guilt on someone. Although in the Old Testament, the sins of the father could be visited under the children of the third and fourth generation. That's not going on here. But it was, he was born blind so that the acts of God may be revealed through what happened to him. Now let me tell you this. We don't understand why bad things happen all the time. But there are at least in the New Testament five reasons why bad things happen to the people of God sometimes. This is one of them. So that God can display his glory and his works in that situation. I think Christianity is the only faith system that gives a valid answer to the question. That's another whole talk. If you want to know more about this stuff, you know, get on the website for 71-17.org or tweet or email me and I'll be happy to send you more stuff. But one of the reasons why bad things happen is so that the works of the acts of God may be revealed through what happened to him. We must perform the deeds of the one who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground and made some mud with the saliva. He smeared the mud on the blind man's eyes and said, here's mud in your eye. No, he said, here's Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated since. So the man went away and washed and came back seeing. Now, in the Jewish Mishnah, you were not allowed to heal on the Sabbath. And you were not allowed to heal a man on the Sabbath who, uh, by spitting on the ground and making mud and putting it into the eyes, it was specifically forbidden in the Mishnah. So Jesus specifically disobeys the tradition. And he makes mud and he sticks it. What are you thinking if you're a disciple right now? Are, are we nuts here? Dave, are you there? Can you put the, uh, the temple steps picture up? Because it's at the bottom of this hill, uh, all the way near the end of the presentation, at the bottom of the hill is this large, yeah, this, this is the temple mount, and you're coming from south to north here, and these are the, the, it's called the grand staircase, and way down this hill, way down this hill about here is this pool. It's where the priest had to go for the urn of water, and it's where the man has to go and wash out his mud. And he comes back seeing. That's pretty cool. And then the plot thickens. So, he came back seeing. Verse 6, the blind man went away and washed and came back seeing. Verse 8, the neighbors and the people who had seen him previously as a beggar began saying, isn't this the man who sit and beg? You sit and beg. Some people are saying, this is the man. Others are saying, nah, it just looks like him. He kept saying, I'm the guy, I'm the guy, I'm the guy. They said, well, how were you made to see? Verse 11, he said, the man called Jesus made mud and smeared it on my eyes and told me, go and wash. I washed and I came back and I see. Where is that man? He replied, I don't know. Well, he'd never seen Jesus. He'd only heard Jesus and he felt Jesus. But he hadn't seen Jesus, but now he can see. So they, the crowd, the neighbors, do the logical thing. This is a messianic miracle. We know, there are enough of us here that know he was born blind. We better get the scoop on this. So they take him to who? The Pharisees, verse 13. Here's the first interrogation. They brought the man who used to be blind to the Pharisees. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and caused him to see was the Sabbath. So the Pharisees asked him again, how had he gained his sight? He said, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees began to say, this man is not from God because he does not observe the Sabbath. 
But others said, how can a man who was a sinner perform such miraculous signs? There was a division among them. There's our phrase again. So they again asked the man who used to be blind, what do you say about him since he caused you to see? He is a prophet, the man replied. Now watch. How had he referred to Jesus back in verse 11? He called him just a man. The man called Jesus did this. Now he says he is a what? Prophet. That's just an underlying theme throughout here. Okay? Now the Jewish religious leaders refused to believe that he'd been really blind and had gained his sight till at last they summoned the parents of the man who had been blind and been become able to see. They asked the parents, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? We're going to get to the bottom of this. It's clearly a messianic miracle. If indeed it's true, it can't be true because this Jesus is demonic. He's a Samaritan. He gets his power from Satan. Hey, what are we going to do? Let's call the parents in. So his parents replied, and this is sad to me, we know this is our son, and we know that he was born blind, but we do not know how he is now able to see, nor do we know who caused him to see. Ask him. He is a mature adult. He will speak for himself. Now watch. His parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jewish religious leaders. For the Jewish leaders had already agreed that if anyone who can, that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents, he is a mature adult, ask him. Let me ask you what you would feel like if you had a child who was born blind and now could see. I hope I'd do better than this. But they're so afraid of the Pharisees, they don't want to get put out of the synagogue. And that's formal excommunication from the synagogue. It's the same kind of idea we talked about in the last session in Matthew 18. There's no reconciliation. You're put out. You're untouchable. And they don't want that because they've already been through the, the meat grinder of having an unclean child. So they interrogate the man again, verses 23 to 34. They summoned the man who used to be blind a second time. And by the way, let me just give you the outline for this passage. Verses 1 to 12 is the physical healing. I'm sorry I didn't do that on the front end. Verses 13 to 17 is the first interrogation. Then verses 18 to 22 is the parents' interrogation. And now, beginning in verses 23 to 34, is the second interrogation of the man who had been blind. They summon the man, verse 24 who used to be blind a second time and said, Promise before God to tell the truth, we know this man is a sinner. Again, he's a blasphemer. He's doing this on the Sabbath. He's a sinner. He's demon-possessed. We know all this. He replied, Well, I don't know whether he's a sinner or not. One thing I know. <laughs> I was blind, now I see. I love this guy. He's my hero. He's one of the guys I'm going to meet the first two years in heaven. They said, what did he do to you? How did he cause you to see? He answered, I told you already, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You people don't want to become his disciples too, do you? Now, up until this day, how had his relationship been with the Pharisees? He had none. He was unclean. They hated him. They might have thrown a coin his way. But now he's the center of their attention. I think he's getting off on this. So verse 28, they heaped insults on him. You are his disciples Disciple, we are disciples of Moses. We know God has spoken to Moses. We do not know where this man comes from because he came from Nazareth and he's illegitimate. The man replied, well, here's a remarkable thing that you don't know where he's come from and yet he did a messianic miracle and caused me to see. If anybody ought to know where he's from, you guys ought to know, right? 
We know God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is devout and does his will, God listens to him. Never before, underline that, never before, that's why it's messianic, has anyone heard of someone causing a man born blind to see? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They replied, you were born completely in sinfulness, and yet you presumed to teach us, so they put him out. You were born completely in sinfulness is a nice way of saying, you illegitimate SOB. In fact, the old living Bible used to say that. You illegitimate bastard, you. And they put him out. Now, here's the irony in this whole passage. Where was the man before John 9 takes place? He was out because he couldn't see. Why was he out? Because he was blind. Now he's able to see, and where does he end up? Out. And in, in many ways worse than before in terms of the Pharisees. I say that because of this. Our goal is to share Christ with people, but I never want to give somebody the idea that if you'll just come to Jesus, all your problems are going to be over. In fact, some of your problems might just be starting. You're going to have eternal life, and you're going to have forgiveness, and you're going to have the right to have a relationship with God. It doesn't mean your life is always going to be easy. That was not the case for this man. I love verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, so he found the man and said to him, See, now the man not only needed physical healing, and here we have the spiritual healing, verses 35 to 41. Do you believe in the Son of Man? You see, Jesus came to show us what God is like. God is a loving God who hears about our need and comes and finds us and meets us where we have a need. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man says, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? He didn't know Jesus. He hadn't seen him yet. And then Jesus told him, You have seen him, and he is the one speaking with you. Wow, there are only two people in the life of Jesus that we're told about that find out from Jesus who he is on day one. Remember the other one? Woman at the well. A Samaritan woman, a blind guy, and God does things so differently than I would. And then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. What did he call Jesus in verse 11, the man? What did he call Jesus in verse 17, a prophet? Now what does he call Jesus? Lord. And when he sees spiritually, he worships. Now, verse 40, some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this and asked him, We were not blind too, are we? Jesus replied, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now, because you claim that we can see, your guilt remains. And so the story ends with the blind man seeing and the seeing men, the Pharisees, blind because they are spiritually blind. I just love the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is the living water. If you thirst, you come to him. He's the light of the world, God in the flesh who lives in our midst. And he's not like the God of the disciples who sinned this man or his parents that he's blind. He's not like that. He's not a judging God. He's not behind the clouds of heaven saying, who can I send to hell? And he's not like the neighbor's God who the neighbors are like kind of like, eh, it just looks like him. God would never really actively work here and now, would he? And he's not like the God of the Pharisees who's locked into their list of rules, is he? And he's not even like the God of the blind man who says, you know, God really only hears you if you're good. I know that's not true. I'm hoping that's not true. But God is a person who hears what our need is and meets us where we are and ministers to us right there. Thank you, Father, for your son Jesus who shows us what you're like. We go in his name.
Amen.